This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you to this hour of the Bible line. If you are a new listener here at 88.7 for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a text of scripture that you are studying and you're not sure its meaning or application, or you're looking for a text that would address an issue in your life or family or ministry that maybe we can be of help with. So feel free to call us again. The local number, the 843 exchange here in South Carolina is simply 525-1859. The toll-free 877 number is the call letters of the station, WAGP, 877-WAGP-980. Or if you prefer, you can email your questions directly here into the studio. And the email address for the Bible line, tbl, tbl at net, And we'll receive them right here in the studio. We often have more questions than we can answer. They just stack up, but we answer as many of them as we can. And if you submit a question, sometimes it takes a month or two before we can get to it, but you will be emailed uh, saying if you submitted it through Ask Dr. Brogy a Question at Search the Scriptures, we'll email you back and say, hey, your question was answered today, and you can listen to the audio file and if that's of help to you. So anyway, with that said, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll begin this morning. All right, Pastor, indeed, we do have numerous questions. And Dave, who happens to be a deployed soldier, has a dilemma. He writes, I'm currently deployed and have stopped going to Sunday service where I am located. I had stopped because a new group of chaplains had arrived to take over the services to preach. The new chaplains who have taken charge of service to preach are both female. The Bible is clear about the roles of male and female leadership in church. I'd still like to fellowship with the other believers at service, but I'm torn because it just doesn't feel right and doesn't sit right with me. Out of all the other soldiers who attend service, I seem to be the only one who hasn't been back to service since. My question, uh, can a female be a chaplain in the military, and is a chaplain by standard the same as a civilian preacher? Should I still attend the service? Thank you. Well, it's, it's a good question, and there are many challenges that we uh, face in the day that we live in because gender roles have been blurred and obliterated and ignored, and you know most of the critical issues come out of the book of Genesis, and just the simple truth that God created the male and female, that's being denied, and that God, even in Genesis, unfolds various roles. The Bible affirms the equality of men and women, But it's quite clear that while we are equal, we have roles. And so even the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians, he is the father is described as the head of Christ. Now, if you have any kind of sound biblical Christology, then you know that the father and the son are equal, and yet they have different roles. And so it is with men and women in the church. So it's not actually simply an issue 
of uh, chaplaincy versus, say, a local church pastor. It's an issue of roles. And so the scripture speaks about men and women, and he says uh, how women should dress not to call attention to themselves, either through immodest or a vain kind of clothing that says, look at me, uh, but rather they should call attention to themselves in First Timothy 2 by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. And then he says uh, very clearly, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And just to make it very clear that this was not just some cultural expression that was time-bound, he brings it all the way back to the creation, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And so he looks at the creative order, and then he also looks at how the fall took place, that when Eve stepped out of her God-given role under the leadership of Adam, she was deceived. And so it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And that's not a put-down on women. Uh, she just didn't do what God had called her to do. And whenever you step out of whatever authority that God has called you to be under, and we are all under some kind of authority, uh, then you open yourself up to deception. Adam wasn't deceived. It was Eve. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew precisely what he was doing. And then he affirms women by saying that while they shouldn't teach and exercise authority over a man, uh, God has given them another role, and that's to bear and to raise children. And that's no small role. My wife would often say, well, I can teach men just little men. And she shaped four sons that God gave us uh, by carrying on the God-given responsibility the Lord had entrusted to her, and that's no small thing. So what's sad today is that you have Christian organizations, uh, parachurch organizations, and even local churches that have really taken this scripture because this is like uh, hitting into a brick wall in our day with the culture because they think so differently and they say, well, uh, I can teach and preach in a church because my pastor gave me permission and I'm under his authority to preach this sermon, Beth Moore. No, no pastor has authority to give you authority that God expressly forbids. Or people will say, well, this is not a church worship service. This is an adult Bible fellowship, an adult Sunday school class, whatever you want to call it. And so we couldn't get any of the men to teach, so I'm teaching. No, the standard does not change. And it doesn't change with the chaplaincy. The principle is the same. Sometimes if you take um, uh, a situation, you exaggerate it, you can step back then you can see the wisdom. So let me create another scenario. Suppose these two women were lesbians. And by the way, there's a lot of lesbians who are in the military. Uh, believe me, there are some fine women who are in the military, but there's a lot of lesbians and a lot who are in the chaplaincy because religion is a ploy of the evil one, often to promote immorality. And so with that said, suppose uh, the woman teaching was a lesbian. Would you want to sit under her authority? She is an avowed lesbian breaking the clear teaching of Scripture. You'd say, of course not. I, I, w- I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to give, like, credence or endorsement to what she was doing. Okay, so you would draw a line somewhere. Well, I think you can draw a line on this issue as well. And obviously it bothered your conscience, and 
That was just the Spirit of God at work in you. Whatever is not from faith, Paul says, is sin. And so I often paraphrase that, when in doubt, cut it out. Um, But this is a clear violation of Scripture. So even if someone didn't know what the Scripture said and they might have kind of a check in their spirit, that's often the Holy Spirit guarding you. I understand your frustration and that you want fellowship with other believers, but there's many alternatives. Sometimes there's some fine people in the chaplaincy, men who are leading, who are born again, but sometimes there are chaplains who are not. I remember years ago when I first came to Buford and we did a musical, I think the year was 1992 at Paris Island, and I met one of the chaplains, and at the time he said, there's 11 of us here that are chaplains. I said, oh, really? Are they all pretty much like you? He said, no, two of us are born again, and nine are not born again. So, you know, you get a mixed bag, though there are many, again, fine Christian chaplains who serve the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, as Navy chaplains under the Marine Corps, wherever they might be. So, um, again, you might want to look for some alternatives. Maybe there's some other like people who, hey, I'd like to have a Bible study, and uh, we're going to have it, you know, uh, 10 o'clock on Sunday nights or whatever it might be, and you can squeak in a time. But don't violate your conscience, especially when it's a clear, definitive command of Scripture. And again, this is just being abused all over the place. So you have J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, who's waffling on this. Why? Because, you know, you don't want to lose your clientele. And if you really take a stance, you're going to be viewed as narrow, arrogant, bigoted, um, and on and misogynist. Um, You're going to be just, you know, buttonholed is less than loving for telling people the truth. And so he says, well, we can have women preach at our church there in Durham, North Carolina as long as, again, they're under my authority. And he takes his passage, teach and exercise authority, that if it's not a controversial issue, uh, then a woman can do that. Look, that's a clear violation of Scripture. You can rationalize it all you want, or you have organizations like Crew, where, again, they're in a fall right now. They're in deep trouble, and I pray for them because I'm grateful. I worked for that organization when it was called Campus Crusade for Christ for 12 and a half years. But again, they're rationalizing, well, look, this is not a local church. We're a parachurch. And so if we have 5,000 U.S. staff that are gathered in Fort Collins, Colorado, and we want some women to open the Bible and to teach. Now, we're not talking about sharing a testimony or anything like that. We're talking about opening the scripture and teaching which is an authoritative position if it's done biblically, uh, then, you know, they say we're not a local church, therefore we can do this. No, you can't. That is a clear violation of Scripture. And so you can't rationalize that to say, well, this applies just to the local church any more than you can rationalize the preceding verse where he says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly. Oh, does that mean that only women in the local assembly have to dress modestly and discreetly. But if you're in some parachurch organization or some other Christian setting, it doesn't apply? Of course not. That would just be sloppy biblical exegesis. So um, I, I would you know, commend my brother here who's deployed, and there's obviously some real challenges. It's not forever. I think God understands the setting you're in, but you can commit it to prayer, and hopefully you can find another 
couple of brothers who think likely, or even if they don't, and again, the church is so untaught today, this is why the door is wide open to error, because pastors are no longer opening the scriptures and just teaching the plain, simple truth of scripture. So people don't know better. They think, oh, this is fine. Sounds reasonable to me when they've really never studied the scripture on it. And by the way, I have some messages at searchthescriptures.org on the role of women in the church. And I did a series on it some years back, probably should preach it again sometime. But I went through every single passage in the Old and in the New Testaments and looked at each one contextually. Uh, Those passages that people use, whether it's Deborah as a judge, whether it's the daughters of Philip who are prophetesses and so on. And in every single instance, we looked at their historical grammatical context to see that what God revealed in the Old Testament or by example in other New Testament passages, that none of them were in violation of 1 Timothy, uh, that these are passages that do not endorse women being come, becoming pastors or teachers over men. As it says in uh, Esther, perhaps God is using you for such a time as this. And, um, you know, when you think of the first century churches, there weren't any seminaries. They just had people that had perhaps the gift of teaching. And uh, right. they felt that, um, uh, you know, that they, you know, wanted to study to show themselves approved to, to God. And uh, they dug into the scriptures as perhaps this brother should do. And then start these various opportunities for him to then be a a teacher and eventually maybe even, who knows, God will use him to be a pastor. You know, uh, we're discussing this morning with a brother who just graduated with a degree from Dallas Seminary. He said, well, you know, we're kind of facing, we faced the same problem there. And I went to Dallas and, you know, we've got women, we just give them a different title. We call them a professor. And so they're a professor, they're not a preacher. And so they're teaching uh, men who are preparing for the pastorate. Hey, look, for nearly a hundred years, Dallas Seminary was opposed to that line of thinking. What, have they been enlightened all of a sudden? All of a sudden they, they see something that they never seen before? You know, for 80 years they taught that Christians shouldn't use alcohol because it was a violation of uh, the strong drink prohibition. Uh, now they're enlightened I suppose, like Moody, and it's okay, like Moody Bible Institute, they said it's okay for professors to drink, smoke, and gamble in moderation. You know, did they have their eyes open? Did they see something that no one else saw for decades and decades? Look, we're just living in days of apostasy and a gross falling away, and we need to be alert and sensitive to what God has said. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, Dr. Carl Brogy and Rick Porchner. My question is, uh, you know, that the, the Jews and Christians, you know, in the first century when they were under the ruler of Rome, and they didn't assimilate, they didn't integrate, and they didn't want to uh, assimilate and integrate with the culture of Rome. So, and it was okay for them to do that. So how come uh, today in America, when Muslims come over here, they do the same thing? And we criticize them for it. Why is it okay for the Christians to do it in the first century? Well, well let, me, let me just be the, sure uh, I'm clear. Here in America. Yeah, let me just be clear here in your statement that you are using as a premise. You are saying that the Christians did or did not assimilate into the first century culture of Rome. Correct. 
no, I'm asking you. Are you saying did they assimilate? Did they say they, yes? They did not. They, they did not. They, okay. they did not. They didn't want to assimilate because they're so separate. Because I heard a sermon by uh, John MacArthur. Okay. So, okay, good question. I just wanted to make sure we we're clear and on the same page. They did and they didn't assimilate. So let's make it clear what they did do and what they didn't do. Uh, they would not assimilate into the culture of Rome in the aspect that they would not um, submit themselves to any pagan rituals. And so as the uh, emperors changed from one to another up until the time of Constantine, where he was supposedly converted, we can debate that or not, but he certainly became uh, warm towards the Christian faith and lifted a lot of the restrictions that had led to the death and the slaughter of innocent Christian people. So when a Christian was required, as every Roman um, member of the empire was required to do, every Roman citizen, you had to bow down once a year and say, Christos, uh, you had to say, Caesar Curios. That means Caesar is Lord, and you'd offer a pinch of incense, and you would declare that Caesar is Lord. Well, the Christians refused to do that. And they said, Christos, Kurios, that is, Christ is Lord. And many, many, many died because of it. So in that respect, they did did not submit. In other respects, they did submit. Every person, Paul says, is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority is opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And so they did submit to rules uh, over them that were not in violation of a higher authority, namely God himself. And so to the religious authorities, not secular authorities, but religious authorities, but the principle holds, Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. So when the Jewish Sanhedrin forbade them, from being able to share the gospel, they said, we're going to keep doing it. So as long as the government doesn't ask you to do something that is in direct consequence, look, you say they paid their taxes. Jesus commanded us to pay our taxes. The Bible commands us in the other submission passage in First Peter to, to pay our taxes. You say, but it was an evil, wicked government. Yes, it was. It had a lot of faults with it but they still needed to pay their taxes. Why? Because it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. And so he says, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. And so he says, then render to whom rendered to all what is due them. And again, he brings up tax like Peter tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so as best we can, we respect the government and we pay our taxes. So would it be wrong for the U.S. government to ask a Muslim to come if he wants citizenship and to swear allegiance to the Constitution? No, that's what we're founded on. Now, there are people, of course, who want to eradicate that. But there's nothing in the Constitution per se. In fact, if you study the Constitution carefully with its checks and balances, it's, it's built along a, 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 upon a number of biblical principles. So you wouldn't be wrong. Now, people today 
They don't want our young people to know basic civic history. They don't want them to know what is in the Constitution, what it says. And it's really an incredible document, largely, again, because it's built and predicated on a lot of principles from Scripture. Was the United States a perfect culture when it started? Of course not. There are no perfect nations any more than there are any perfect churches. But if it was, if it's that bad a nation, why are people banging on the doors to come in here? And if we lose the bases by which uh, this nation has been founded, as spelled out in the Constitution and Declaration of Independence, and explained in documents like the Federalist Papers, which are really kind of a commentary on on the Constitution, then we lose what really makes us as Americans. So I don't think it's wrong at all to ask people, if you, look, if you don't like what we have, you don't have to stay. Um, we don't have to grant you citizenship and you can leave. But again, if there's no punch to the law, it's meaningless. But why pay taxes even to a government where at this point Nero is in charge? Because you need government. Why? Because it exercises the sword. And so it's utter folly to say, well, let's defund the police. That's just madness. That's just sheer stupidity underestimating the fallen nature of man. And so you want there to be havoc in a culture, get rid of the police. You want there to be havoc in the nation, get rid of the military. And you'll see how long will last. All right. Pastor, does any of this have to do with... um what you might be preaching on this Sunday? A little bit. So that would be one aspect of it. I'm going to preach on God and government. And so we have a new administration that is coming in on the 20th of January. I know there are many conspiracy theories that, you know, Trump's going to institute martial law and he's going to prove the election is, you know, invalid and all that. I don't think so. Uh, We will have a new president on January the 20th. Now, I still hope Uh, that we have our day in court because I'm not saying the election was not stolen. Uh, There's always been election fraud on some level. The question is, was there unprecedented election fraud? And that, I think, maybe remains to be demonstrated in a clear way. And I hope that people will have their day in court because if we lose the integrity of the voting system, we've lost the republic. And if you have 75, 80 million Americans who think that the election was fraudulent, then there's a tremendous amount of distrust. And so it's really sad what happened at the Capitol last Wednesday and the debate that should have taken place in a different way and in a fuller sense. It was very limited in some of the things that could have been explored and maybe have been opened up for further discussion was just lost because of what sadly happened. Uh, anyway, but yeah, that's what I'm speaking. I'll depart from the James series this Sunday to speak on God and government. You don't want to miss it. All right. Timothy from Bridgeport, Connecticut writes, I've been studying your teachings on the book of Revelation. You mentioned a verse from Ezekiel 28, where Lucifer was in the Garden of Eden as he was first created by God. I'm assuming this meant he was there before his fall. If he was there before his fall, then the theory of earth being destroyed, then remade because of the fall of Satan has to be false. The idea that earth was the battlefield for good against evil, then God had to remake earth. Would you please comment on this? Well, you're perceptive, you're thinking. Uh, There's two critical passages that describe the fall of Satan. One is Isaiah 14, and it's easy to remember 14 times 2 is 28. So Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. 
And so you have some uh, parallels going on uh, between a human king and then this unique person, namely Satan, Lucifer, in his pre-fall state that could apply to no human at all. And so in Ezekiel 28, he speaks of Satan and he says, you're in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onks, and jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and emerald and the gold. Uh, The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created, that you were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountains of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in all your ways. This could be said of no human being. And he says, uh, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. He's a created being, so don't think of Satan as being omnipresent or omnipotent. He's not or omniscient. Uh, Until, until, until unrighteousness was found in you. So this is one of the passages that help us to understand the fall of Satan. So what you're referencing is people put this fall, some people, in 19th century theology between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was form, formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so the argument is that this um, fall of Satan in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 happened between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, that God made the world and then something happened that caused it to become uh, form, uh, formless and, and void. And so they call this the gap theory. And, of course, they argue that this period of time was for millions of years, and this is when dinosaurs walked on the earth and and so on, and this is how you explain a world that's, you know, potentially millions or billions of years old. Well, there's nothing in the Hebrew text that says it became. It says it was. And so that's a real reading into the text, and no reader of Hebrew would come to that understanding. That's why no Jew, no Orthodox Jew, and you can read kind of their commentaries in the Talmud on this, ever thought that there was some gap of time. This theory did not come until the 19th century. In the 1800s, when Christians were trying to reconcile evolution as it was unfolding, and even more into the um, 20th century uh, with the geological record. The problem is, is when you look at the geological record, where you find, you know, dinosaur bones and everything else, you, you find clearly death and thorns and disease before the fall. And Scripture is clear that there was no death in the world until sin entered into the world. And so even if you didn't read Hebrew, you could probably figure it out from passages like, you know, the book of Exodus, this, this idea that there was this Luciferian flood uh, that God destroyed the world and then he recreates it. And, and, and by the way, this is an English problem uh, in Genesis. Um, let's see if I can find it. Genesis 1, 28, God blessed them and said to them, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, in the old English, the 16th century English, it said replenish the earth. 
And so some gravitated to that, you know, 300 years after it was used, and they were saying, well, it had already been plenished, now you're replenishing it. But the prefix re in 16th century English meant to fill completely. So it carried a different connotation. That's why there's always a need for a modern literal translation of God's Word. But again, even if you didn't know Hebrew, you could figure out from other passages. And again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so when God gives the Decalogue in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, I'm reading it now from Moses' account in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Why? Because for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth to see and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. There's no gap here. There's a continuation. So God is describing what the world was like as he started it in how he basically took like an unformed piece of clay and then constructed it to what we see in six literal days. But the gap theory compromises God's clear teaching in Scripture, and it's a failure to uh, literally believe the account that death came into the world as a result of sin. And so the fall didn't take place uh, until Adam. So to have dinosaurs and these other creatures living before the fall. No, dinosaurs were created, Genesis teaches, on the day he created man. Uh, the term dinosaur is a term that came out of the 1870s. It was a new word that was coined. In Scripture, it's called behemoth, and he speaks of these massive, massive creatures. God created dinosaurs on the same day he created man. And I think you can build a case that there were probably still some dinosaurs on the earth through the 12th century, and maybe even... In the 1970s, the Japanese have that famous dinosaur stamp where they took a huge dinosaur, not land creature, but water creature that no one could identify. And they actually, it was dead. It got caught in their nets and they pulled it up with a crane and they pictured it and they made a stamp out of it. They called it the dinosaur stamp. Um, Dinosaurs may have been around later than we think, but every year, Every week, I suppose, there are animals, birds, insects, etc., that go into extinction. And at one point, the dinosaurs went into extinction as man either killed them, as their habitat was destroyed, and eventually they went extinct. But the gap theory is nonsense. In your simple reading of Ezekiel 28, makes it clear that Satan was alive and in the same Garden of Eden. And again, the simple reading of the English or the Hebrew text is that he is referring to a place that every Jew could identify, the Garden of Eden, that the same Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve walked in, Satan walked in at one point in an unfallen state. So anyway, I hope that helps. Let's go to the next question. All right. Summer from Jacksonville, North Carolina writes, Hi, we attended a church for a while that refused to say anything about being gay, and therefore we had several gay couples who attended and served at the church. We no longer attend there, but it left me wondering, what do we do to encourage gay people to realize that God doesn't want for them, and he wants them to submit to his word? 
But at the same time, I'm realizing it's complicated on a whole new scale because two couples I've befriended have children. How do we encourage them to break up their family? Well, again, it's sad that you can have people in your fellowship who are serving. I'm assuming they're members. Maybe not. Maybe that's a false assumption on my part because you don't give that detail. I know at Community Bible Church, people who can serve must be members. Members, membership has its privileges and it has its responsibilities. You say, why would you make require someone to be a member to serve? Because if someone's not a member of a New Testament local church, they're either between churches or they're living in ignorance or they're living in rebellion. Uh, so why would I want a rebellious Christian who's unwilling to submit himself under the authority of elders, obey your leaders, submit to them, to give a rebellious person a place to serve, obviously I would not. So I don't know if they're members or not, but the fact that they are given the opportunity to serve members or non-members is a mistake because you're basically condoning their behavior, saying everything's fine. Yeah, you can come here. You can serve here. You want to work in the nurseries. You want to teach Awana. You can do whatever you want. You know, it's fine. No problem. What are you doing? You are being... Uh, you're condoning their behavior and God doesn't want us to condone our behavior. He doesn't want us to be complicit. He doesn't want us to be complacent. He wants us to be courageous. He wants us to stand up for what's right, to speak truth. And you're doing them an eternal disservice because again, and I have a whole message on this. You can go to YouTube. I'm not sure how much longer it's going to be up there. The way free speech is being, eradicated in this country, uh, but, or do you not know that the, it's a called, is it okay to be, is it okay to be gay? Um, pull it up, Rick, see if it's still there. Um, listening to another Christian uh, pastor recently, his sermons are being taken down. They're already scouring YouTube and removing some sermons that they view as hate speech or you know, insensitive, you'd have to go to YouTube and type in, is it okay to be gay? And then type in my name. And um, there it is. How many views uh, does it have? 4,700 so far. All right. So uh, it's still there. Thank God. Is it okay to be gay? And I go through all of the passages, Old and New Testament, look at them contextually. I examine the texts that people use to say, this is not really what God meant. Uh, This is not what he meant when he said this. And oh, God meant what he said. He said what he meant. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And again, people manipulate this and they say, well, you know, they'll go to heaven. They just won't inherit the kingdom. And again, they make these, you know, judgments over scripture that you cannot defend with the rest of scripture. The kingdom of God is uh, equated to with where we will spend eternity. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Good news, though, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So we do people who come to our church, and I tell people, anyone can come to our church. We, we don't hate gay people. Hey, look, I just had 15 police officers in the church and a number of school administrators, and they wanted to have a meeting with me because they had a uh, gas leak at a local high school, 
And fortunately, it was a warm day, and they had no place in which to uh, put the students in safety. And so they said, we, we need a place if there's some shooting, some you know traumatic event that would come on our campus. We need to be able to bus the students to a safe place until the parents can come and retrieve them. Can we use your facility? And of course, I want to serve the community. I want to serve people. And they explained. I said, well, I said, I don't see any problem at all. I said, here's the only exception I would make. And if you can't live with this, just tell me up front because we won't use this facility. But if you have transgender students in your middle or in high schools, which they do now in Beaufort County, which they are teaching in Beaufort County, uh, which some are saying this is okay. Uh, And again, if the Equality Act is passed, uh, we will see mandatory, you know, requirements for transgender students to use the bathroom of their choice. And so if they were born a male and now think they're a female, then they can go into the girls' bathroom. And I said, I just want to be clear here that if you have transgender students who come, uh, they have to use the bathroom of their uh, of their birth, of their biological identity that God gave them. And if you have a problem with that, I said, you know, it's okay, I understand, but the meeting's over, there's no further discussion. And fortunately, they didn't have a problem with that. But if... The Democrats rule, and I heard the post. My wife heard the postmaster. She told me uh, in a post in a uh, United States post office she was in yesterday, and and she said, "Yeah, Trump has made America great again." And her implication and her phraseology and the context was, "He's made it great again because he's gone, and now we've got a party in there that's going to do what we want them to do." So if President Biden in this new Senate does what they want to do, then there's going to be huge ramifications on the body of Christ. And I'll be discussing that this Sunday. So you might want to listen to the message. So what you are seeing happening is really sad. And what pulls on your heart and your emotions are these innocent children. You think, man, they got a family. Look at these kids. These kids are great. Listen, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And it's wrong for two men, two women to be living together. I don't care that the laws allowed them to adopt or through some other means they were impregnated and have children. You know, it's really very, very sad. And it's sad to hear our new president of the United States affirm that if an eight-year-old wants to transition into another sex, then he ought to be allowed to do that. Look, if we had this discussion, if I said that on the air 20 years ago, people would say, nuts? I mean, that's almost comical. Or that's sick. It's perverted. Not anymore. Because God has given our nation over to a reprobate mind. Woe to you who call good evil and evil good. And that's where we are at. And we're in for a ride. And so these guys like John Piper and, you know, Phil Fisher with Veggie Tales, who said, you know, it doesn't really matter and it's okay. You know, and they drew away 5 to 10% of the evangelical vote. Yep, we're, we're living with their, with their council now. And all the foolish Christians and the biblically illiterate and biblically ignorant Christians listen to them. 
and yeah, we're we're living with, with the uh, with the kind of counsel that they gave. Eight four three five two five one eight five. Excuse me, five nine. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Abdel from Louisville, Kentucky writes, "Hello, Pastor Brogy. First, I want to thank you for sharing your wisdom and knowledge of the scriptures." The other day, before Christmas, I was talking to someone about the plans I had for Christmas, and this person told me they do not celebrate Christmas because of what it says in Jeremiah 10, verses 1 to 4. Would you please explain a little bit about this? Well, some people have used this text um, to make an argument that we shouldn't have Christmas trees. Hear the word of the Lord, uh, which speaks to you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord, Do not learn the ways of the nations, and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them, because they worship them, of course. For the customs of the peoples are delusion, they're delusion, because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak. They must be carried, because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. God is not talking about Christmas trees. He is speaking about idolatry. He is speaking about an idol that man crafts with his hands that can neither walk nor speak. And that people call it God. That's the prohibition here. It's not a prohibition against Christmas trees. So, um, you know, again, you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. If you take a text out of its context, if you pretext it, you can potentially distort its meaning. There are some verses you can just read off the page apart from the paragraph in which they are in. And though their richness and fullest meaning, like John 3.16 John 3.16 just comes alive when you read John 3.14, 15, and 16. It's just like, wow, I see it's rich, full meaning in its context. But you can read John 3.16 and not butcher it. But there are other verses that you can read out of the context. And remember, Jeremiah is a pre-exilic prophet, and he's preaching to the southern kingdom that's going to be carried off to Babylon. And he's just reminding them what the Torah had said that you are not to craft for yourself an idol and call it God like the nations that you're headed to will do. And it has nothing to do with Christmas trees. So good question, and I appreciate it. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Kelly, I believe she lives in Varnville these days. She wanted to know, she just called and dictated a question, In light of all that is going on, do you have any new recommendations for homeschooling families about how to make sense and how to deal with this crazy culture? How can they impart something to their kids that uh, will help them cope? Well, again, you know, you want to protect your children. Um, You know, don't expose them 24-7 to the news. Uh, Protect their childhood. Keep their innocence. Uh, Teach them in the context that you want to speak to them. You're going to be forced to address issues. My granddaughter was here last month and uh, they went into a, uh, into the Walmart and she's just eight years old. And Evie said, you know, that's a man and he's got makeup on and eyelashes 
an eye covering. And so, you know, there it is. Natural teaching opportunity. They're going to be exposed to things. But there are some things that we would be wise to not unnecessarily expose them to and to guard their hearts and to protect them. Look, all the more reason. You know, I spoke earlier about transgenderism in the middle schools, and it came to my attention with his single dad. His wife is in jail, and, you know, he's trying to raise his two daughters, and he's just, like, torn because his two daughters are being taught transgenderism in the middle school in Bluffton, South Carolina. You know, and so what is he to do as a dad? And, of course, he decided, I'm going to pull him out, and I'm going to home educate him. And that was a wise thing because he was losing his kids. And so, listen, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So we need to teach our children. We need to teach them biblical truth. We need to teach them, too, how to be prepared because the world is changing. And we do know that there is coming a time when God promises that the evil will only grow. There will not be this final revival that some Christians are praying for. Look, I hope God sends a sweeping revival, but there's coming a time where there's going to be no revival. God promises it. Evil is going to take over. The church will be raptured, and then evil like we've never seen it because the restraining influence of the Spirit of God and the church will be gone. We'll have a true holiday. But right now, and again, I'll address this some on Sunday, so you want to hear Sunday's message. This is an important subject that we are speaking of. But you certainly want to make sure that you stay in tune as a home educator with the rights that right now you enjoy, because there's people right now who want to take away those rights. I did a homeschool seminar last June, and I um, addressed a meeting that was supposed to happen at Harvard University, where they called in over 200 key educators from across the United States and a number of lobbyists. Why a lobbyist? Because lobbyists rule. You uh, give enough money to a politician. Um, you give them enough things that they like. You can sometimes buy their vote. And so the goal of that meeting, which fortunately was canceled through COVID, was to basically try to get rid of home education in the United States. And they made home educators look like dangerous, stupid people. And this... Um, article appeared in the Harvard Law Magazine, and interestingly, the original graphic that they used, they misspelled a word, and this was Harvard, a uh, Harvard publication. Uh, when they later went out online with it, they corrected it. So they were really showing their own ignorance as they made fun of the so-called ignorant home educators. But there's going to be a challenge coming for home educators down the road here. Under this wonderful Biden administration, that some people, Christian people, who thought Phil Fisher, Veggie Tales, he's a good guy, let's promote him, and they listened to people like that. Or John Piper, let's not do anything. And now we've lost the potential votes that could have changed the election. Some people say it was going to be stolen anyway. Maybe, I don't know. That's, that day remains in court. But we lost enough votes from that teaching that drew away evangelicals from going to the polls and voting for Trump. I don't care if you like Trump or not as a person. He's got issues. I don't care if you like him or not. 
The question is, which person best represents a biblical worldview, not just in what they say, but what they're doing? And so Trump was protecting our religious freedoms. Trump was protecting Israel. And on and on we could go. Let's go to the next question. All right. I'm not sure if you are equipped for this yet, but I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, Pamela from Seattle went ahead and went to search the scriptures and asked the pastor the following question. Can you help me find a Bible-based church similar to yours in Seattle? I'm limited in my transportation, so it will need to be in or close to Seattle. So what you can do if you'd like, and we're happy to serve you, is to call Search the Scriptures, and the number is 877-STS for Search the Scriptures 7478, and ask for Pastor Ed. And what he will attempt to do is uh, go online, and he can say, well, for sure you don't want to go to these churches. And sometimes, you know, we see people wanting to Christ here, and they're in the Marine Corps or the military, or sometimes they're adults and they're just moving to be closer to their kids, and they're new Christians. They may be 60 or they may be 26, and we want to help them find a new church in the town they're going through. We can eliminate certain people right off. United Methodists, just exit out. You know, it's a liberal apostate denomination. Uh, church of Christ, you know, baptismal regeneration. Mormons, Jehovah's, you just X out the ones that are plain. And then you start with who's left, and you try to find the best one that you can. So you want to find the best one you can. Now, it is a frustration that in a lot of cities and towns, there's not a healthy local church. And so you find the best one that you can, and you support that pastor. You pray for him. And if he's not opening the scriptures where you're really growing, then you supplement that. You know, take advantages of ministries like Search the Scriptures and You know, we have people who live stream. Last Sunday, we had 35 states that were live streaming, five foreign countries. And some people are live streaming in a different time zone, an earlier time zone. They later go to church. Some live stream in their, you know, Sunday school hours, so to speak, and then they go to church at 11 o'clock. So there's alternatives that you can have. Um, There's maybe someone, I know we have a lot of people from Seattle who listen. And so if someone is in Seattle and you have a recommendation for a sound Bible-believing church, uh, please contact us. Go to searchthescriptures.org, hit the drop-down menu, ask Dr. Brogy a question, and don't ask a question. Just make the comment and say, hey, I go to this church and it's sound or whatever. And then we'll do our best to investigate that and run down that road for you. So I hope that helps. All right, very good. Darina from Augusta, Georgia writes, what does Psalm 109.7 mean? When it says of the wicked man, may his prayer become sin. Well, you know, um, interestingly, not all prayer is pleasing to God. Uh, God says that some prayer is an abomination. You know, some people say, well, you know, all prayer is answered. God either says yes or no or maybe. Uh, Proverbs says some prayer is not even heard because it's an abomination. And so God's not pleased with all prayer, and he's certainly not pleased with the prayer of the wicked man. Um, And for that matter, he's not pleased with us when we regard iniquity in our heart, and we hold on to it, and we cling to it. Uh, Psalm 66 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. And we dump that verse all the time on the lost person and say, see, well, there are other verses that teach that about lost people, where their prayer is an abomination, But certainly it can be said of Christians who are out of fellowship that God doesn't hear their prayer when uh, we are clinging to. Not if I sin, we all stumble in many ways, but when I cling to, hold, cherish, 
sin in my heart. Uh, it's the same principle in Isaiah 59 that our sin has made a separation between us and our God so that he does not hear. So fair question. Go to the next one. Let's see if we can knock some more of these off. We have so many that come in and we feel pretty far behind, but Rick's bringing them up and we'll answer as many of them as we can. All right. Very good. I actually had done something here to prepare things for next week, but let me go ahead and Put this back in. While he's looking, let me just say, this Sunday at Community Bible Church, God and Government, you know, what do we do as Christians under a new government that is going to be, based on their platform, more opposed to Christianity and the Judeo-Christian ethic than any other single government in U.S. history? So what do we do? How do we live like that? So that's Sunday. Jordan writes, can someone be forgiven if they're guilty of Revelation 22, 18 and 19 in the past and they repent and come to Christ or will God take away their part still? Now, whosoever will may come. And uh, where are we at right now in the Revelation series? Have we gotten to Revelation 22 yet? We are. No, we're at uh, 21. 21. We're in the New Jerusalem. Okay, so we're still a little bit away, but he says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. And I will get to this, so just be patient. I think I did 10 or 11 sermons in chapters 21 and 22, so it may be another month or two before you hear it. But this is not a verse that's teaching a loss of salvation. It's a verse that's giving a warning Uh, not just to the principle of Revelation itself, but in one sense, Revelation being the last book to the whole of Scripture. And it's giving a warning of people who would basically willfully, hatefully, volitionally change, add or subtract to what God has said. And that's the day that we're living in. And we're living in days of apostasy. So if someone had a concern that they had done this, uh, they hadn't done it. Not in the sense that he's talking about someone who is against God, who's hostile to the things of God, who's going against the clear revelation of Scripture and trying to change it. And that person is giving clear evidence that they've never been converted and will never have a part in God's kingdom. So if you're concerned that you've done that, trust me, you haven't. And if you will come to Christ, he will receive you. You might want to listen to my series on eternal security. It's in the Back to Basics series. There's five messages on the first handout, eternal security of the believer. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great day as you walk with Christ. Mm-hmm.